He prepares this fish to take Jonah into his stomach because that's where the air is. Look, I told you last time that if God had prepared Jonah to swallow a great whale, I would believe it. If that's what God did, look, the answer is not, is this possible? The answer is not, is there a fish big enough to take a human on board? The answer is, how big is your God? Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogi, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are working on a study of the book of Jonah, and as Dr. Brogi examines the heart and rebellion of Jonah as he refuses to repent of his disobedience, he would rather be thrown into the sea than turn back in the direction of God's calling. Let's join Dr. Brogi now in the book of Jonah, chapter 2. Take your Bibles, would you? The book of Jonah, chapter 2. If you're new to the Bible, you might want to use the table of contents. If you'll find Psalms, just scan to the right. And Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, you will soon come to the prophet Jonah. It's a short little book, but it has a powerful message. He lives 750 years before Christ comes from heaven to earth. But don't let the age of the message make you think that it's irrelevant. It's relevant because it is the revelation of God. And here at Community Bible Church, we believe in teaching the Bible. We believe what matters is not the opinion of men, but the Word of God. And that's why we typically go through entire books of the Bible. We call it expository preaching, where you take a a Bible and you start in the first verse and you go all the way through that book of Holy Scripture. And there's great value in that for both the pastor and for the congregation, One, it helps us to pay attention because we can't skip and neglect more difficult passages of Scripture. Secondly, it keeps us from misinterpreting and misapplying the texts of Holy Scripture. When you study a book in its context, then you see its original meaning. And sadly, there is so much preaching today that has nothing to do with anything where they make a text say something that it doesn't say. And if they just read the verses before and after it, they'd find out it says something very different. And third, it certainly keeps both the pastor and the congregation in balance. I don't just preach those things you want to hear or those things that I like to preach. We're called to teach the whole counsel of Scripture. A short little book, 44 verses, but with a powerful message. I want to begin by reading chapter 2. We left off last time in chapter 1. This is the fourth of what I project to be 10 messages on the prophet Jonah. I'm reading from the New American Standard, and if you don't have a Bible, you should come to meet the pastor and get one. You'll get 50% more out of any message I preach if you have a Bible in your hand. You shouldn't eat off your neighbor's plate. You don't at home, and neither should you here. You need your own Bible that you can mark up, and it's okay to mark it up. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the God who gave us Scripture. Sounds like you have found it by now. Jonah chapter 2, beginning now in verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. 
Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited up, vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Now today I want to address an issue that many Christians struggle with. They struggle with this particular issue of discipline, probably more than any other Christian discipline, and it's the discipline of prayer. Jesus tells us this in Luke's gospel. The context is that he's coming back from heaven. And he said now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. And he tells the parable. And then at the end of the parable, he asks a penetrating question. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Jesus prophesied that as we move towards the end of the age, that believers will grow lukewarm, that their hearts will grow not passionate towards the Lord, but they'll be conformed more by the world. And that's one of the reasons our culture is so sick, is there are so many lukewarm Christians. And so he asks this question, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? Will he find the people of God passionately praying? And the implication is, is that prayer will decrease instead of increase. Paul exhorted us to pray without ceasing. So the pattern is clear. The problem of prayerlessness continues. And so I hope to remind us this morning from this important chapter of Scripture how God can develop and cultivate our prayer life. And I'll tell you that the work that God wants to do through this church is not languishing because of a lack of divine power, but it's languishing because of a lack of prayer. What God wants to do in your life and in my life, it comes through earnest, passionate prayer. And the longer I am a believer in Jesus Christ, I see all the more how subtle the evil one is. And if I were Satan, I wouldn't try to get people to compromise in the trivial areas as much as I would the crucial areas. It doesn't matter if you evangelize just as long as you don't pray. The scripture teaches that the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the lost people. And Satan recognizes that it is far more important for you first to talk to God about man before you talk to men about God. And he doesn't want you to pray in the process of evangelizing. He doesn't mind if you have a quiet time as you study this scripture, even memorize it, just as long as you don't pray. He delights in the kind of Bible study that is done without prayer because the scripture says that kind of study just puffs you up. It just makes you proud and arrogant. He doesn't mind how active you are in some ministry in the church just as long as you don't pray because you can be active without really being fruitful. Samuel Chadwick was a faithful pastor in England who lived over 100 years ago and he wrote these words. The one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. 
He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Listen, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. If you want your ministry to be truly, genuinely fruitful, then we must pray. Now, James, the apostle, that was the last book that we went through. If you remember, as we worked through that, he's called Old Camel Knees. He says more about prayer than any other single author apart from Jesus in the New Testament. And he reminded us that while prayer is important, the heart that it flows from is equally important. So here the half-brother of Jesus said, you lust, you fight, you war, you bicker, you quarrel. And then he added, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. So chapter two of this prophet is very instructive in helping us to see the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Now, some of you are here for the very first time. Some of you are tuning in for the first time and you're walking into this prophet cold. And I know that repetition is a great teacher. So let me bring us into the context of where we are. Here is a prophet of God who's commissioned by God to go preach to the wicked Ninevites. But he doesn't like the Ninevites and what they stand for. So if you remember, he went in the opposite direction. God commissioned him to go to Nineveh. His message was simple. Yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown. Eight words in our English Bible, five words in the Hebrew text. And of course, God saw the wickedness of the people of Nineveh. And in spite of their wickedness, God still cared for the people of Nineveh. This message, yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown, was a message of grace. And unless a person sees their sin, they'll never see their need for grace. Certainly, God could have just destroyed the city and wiped it off the map on the planet. But he chose not to. He did that with Sodom and Gomorrah. But he's giving these people an opportunity. There's still an inkling in their hearts for them to be able to repent. God cared for the Ninevites. God cared for lost people. And so should we. So there's Jonah's commission. There's Jonah's message. And then in verse 3, if you remember, there was Jonah's response. But Jonah rose up to flee for, to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. From the presence of the Lord, repeated twice. Because the issue is not the place, it is the person. It's the Lord himself. Now, obviously, on the one hand, Jonah knows that you cannot flee from an omnipresent God. But on the other hand, he knows that he cannot preach to the wicked Ninevites if he's 3,000 miles away. So just to refresh your memory, this map hopefully is becoming uh, sunk into your thinking. He lives in Israel in a place called gath Hefer. It's three miles from Nazareth. Instead of heading northeast up into Nineveh, he goes down to Joppa today, modern-day Tel Aviv. He finds a ship and he heads towards Tarshish, which is in southern Spain. Tarshish is in southern Spain. Now, there are many scholars today who are educated beyond their own intelligence, and they're coming up with all these other different places. 
utter nonsense. It's a well-established fact, still in the minds of Jewish people to this day, for the first 1,900 years of church history, that Tarsus is Spain. Herodotus, who lives 450 years before Christ, a great and reliable historian, also identifies Tarsus as being Spain. But for a Phoenician sailor, it was the furthest most part that you could sail. It was considered, in essence, the ends of the earth. And that's where Jonah wants to go. He wants to put himself 3,000 miles away from Nineveh. Now, some have reasoned that Jonah fled because he was a coward, but clearly he was not afraid, and we walk through the evidences for that. Some have said, well, he was a bigoted Jew. They argue that he was a reflection of the people of Israel. Why should we care about the Gentiles? We are the chosen people of God. Forget the Gentiles and certainly forget the Ninevites. But there's nothing in the text that would indicate that or through his contemporary prophets. It's not bigotry, it's not cowardness. There's a theological reason given and it's found in the text of scripture itself. Jonah fled because he was a patriot. Do you remember chapter four and verse two? He, that is Jonah, he prayed to the Lord and said, please Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Jonah didn't want to preach this message of grace because he knew that if the Ninevites repented, that God would spare them. But he also knew through contemporary prophets, Amos, Hosea, in Isaiah, that God would ultimately use this generation of people, they're called the Assyrians, with Nineveh being the capital, to come down and be God's holy instrument to discipline Israel. So he puts two and two together. He'd rather have these people destroyed because he loves Israel and he knows the cruelty of the Ninevites, which we have already rehearsed both archeologically and biblically. But since God disciplines those whom he loves, he's going to discipline his servant. He brought a great storm, if you remember. He, 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 he resigns as a prophet, gets on a boat, takes a Mediterranean cruise only to find out that prophets can't resign. They can't quit. They're called by God Almighty. So God brings, he hurls. It's a Hebrew word that's used of Saul who hurls a spear at King David than a shepherd boy. He hurled a storm on the sea. Of course, the sailors do everything in their power to try to solve the problem. Ultimately, what do they do? They throw him overboard. And when they do, the Bible says the sea immediately stops raging. And we read in verse 17 where we left off last time, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Now, we've noted that this verse is a real problem for the liberal scholar. And so, because this is a miracle, and because the book of Jonah is filled with miracles, miracle after miracle after miracle, and because they have a supernatural bias against miracles, they say, well, this is just a parable, it's an allegory, it's fictional, it's like a fairy tale, but it's not history. Still others say, well, this was Jonah who had a dream in the ship during a storm. 
The name of the ship was called the fish, and it had a figurehead possibly for a fish. And then when he finally gets to dry ground, he, he stays in an inn called a fish, and, and, and that's their rationale. Another author suggested that after he swam to, to dry ground, that you know he, he then recounts his dream, and that's what we're reading today. Now, for uh, the last hundred years or so, as we noted last time, many of the liberal skeptics want to argue against Jonah being swallowed by a great fish where he survives because they say it's impossible. Little girl was talking to her teacher about whales and her teacher said it was physically impossible for a whale to swear to swallow a human. And she said, well, wait a minute, teacher. There was a man in the Bible and his name was Jonah and he was swallowed by a great fish. She said that's physically and scientifically impossible. The little girl said to her teacher, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jonah. And the teacher said, well, what if Jonah went to hell? And she said, then you can ask him. <laughs> now again, last time we just cracked the door on this issue. Is there a fish large enough to do that? Well, there's the sperm whale that is known to swim even in the Mediterranean waters. And then there's the blue whale. Here's a picture of the great blue whale. It is so big and its mouth is so large that you can fit an entire football team in its mouth. But its throat is so small it can only feed on herring. Here's a picture of a humpback whale. Uh, some of you have been to Hawaii and you go on those little cruises and you see these big humpback whales as they come out of the water. They're huge animals. In fact, here's a picture of a fisherman in 2018. He's off the coast of Massachusetts. He's uh, working the floor of Cape Cod. There's more than one way they catch lobsters. They catch lobsters through lobster traps, but then you have divers who work the floor and they look for lobsters. And he was down there, and all of a sudden, he was swept up by a great humpback whale. And there he was in the mouth of that humpback. He was there for approximately 30 seconds before he was released. Now, humpback whales are huge creatures, uh, but their throat, again, is very small. They can only eat small crustaceans like krill and small fish. Now, here's a picture of a sperm whale. The sperm whale is equally large, but its throat aperture is some eight feet in diameter, and they have found entire octopus, um, not even digested yet, in the mouths of these great animals. Now, I don't know how big uh, Jonah was, but I'm sure he would have fit in there. But listen, this argument that this is impossible because no one could survive in a great fish is just utter nonsense. It is the anti-supernatural approach that people are taking to the scripture. That's where all of these false interpretations come up. If you have trouble with Genesis 1-1, which is the single most attacked verse for the last hundred years, then you will have trouble with the rest of the Bible. I read an article again this week. I hadn't read it in some 20 years. It was found in the Princeton Theological Review, and it was concerning a whaling ship called the Star of the East, and in 1891, they had spotted a large sperm whale in the vicinity of the Falkland Islands, and two boats were launched, and in a sh short while, one of the boats harpooned this great fish, and then they put a second boat, boat in to get a second harpoon on the fish, and 
It was soon turned over and one of the fishermen drowned and they could not find him. And the other one, they assumed he was drowned because they couldn't find him. Well, eventually they killed this whale and they brought this great animal, this great mammal up onto the ship. And as they cut him open, there was Mr. James Bartley still alive inside of this great fish. They poured seawater over him. They revived him. He was kind of out of his mind for a couple of days, but he came back and he went back to work right there on the ship. Though they say, and it appeared in many newspapers around the world, that his skin was stained a bright white for the rest of his life. Now, let me just say, I don't need to read the record of the Princeton Theological Review. There are actually four cases of people who have been swallowed by a whale. I don't need to read those to convince my mind that the scripture is true. It says here, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. God said it, all I need is the record of scripture. Now the term here for great fish is the Hebrew word dagadal. And it can refer to any large sea creature. Now, the King James uh, in the New Testament, when they recount the historical event, when Jesus uh, quotes what happened with Jonah, they write, three days and three nights, Jonah was in the whale's belly. The New King James says, in the belly of the great fish. Because we don't know for sure. We do know that on the day God created man, he created the sea monsters. And uh, here's actually a picture of a sea monster. In 1977, the Japanese ship called the Zuomaru uh, found this large decaying reptile off the coast of New Zealand. It was so big they needed a crane to hoist it up before they threw it back in. And these Japanese biologists who came on board ended up examining this great creature, and they said it was a plesiosaurus, uh, an ancient water dinosaur. Now, dinosaurs were spotted as late as the 12th century by uh, the uh, Chinese, and there's one reported case in the 9th century by the Irish. You know, they may have been here longer than we realize, but you see, the evolutionists want you to believe that they expired millions and millions of years ago. Well, I don't happen to believe that the world is millions and millions of years old. I think it's between six and 10,000 years old that when God created the world, he created it with the appearance of age. Adam and Eve were adults. The trees in the garden were full-blown, mature, fruit-bearing trees. But because they want to erase God, suppress the truth of God from their thinking, these are some of the explanations they come up with. And so the National Science Museum of Japan said, and I quote, it seems that these animals are not extinct at all. It's possible for only one to have survived, but there must be, there could be more in, in the seas. So who knows what's lurking off the coast the next time you go down to Fripp Island. Mm -hmm. Be careful, children. <laughs> they made a stamp out of it. I have a picture of that stamp. It's a beautiful little thing. So here's the point. The point is not that he could be swallowed by a great fish, but that he could be swallowed and survive it with all of its digestive juices for three days and three nights and come out alive. I told you last time that if God had prepared, or the, the King James says prepared, the NES says appointed, 
uh, prepared carried a slightly different connotation in the 17th century. The word that is used is not God created a fish just for this event, though he certainly could have. There is a word for when God creates out of nothing, ex nihilo. But this is not the word that God uses. God appoints a fish at just the right time. He prepares this fish to take Jonah into his stomach because that's where the air is. Look, I told you last time that if God had prepared Jonah to swallow a great whale, I would believe it if that's what God did. Look, the answer is not, is this possible? The answer is not, is there a fish big enough to take a human on board? The answer is, how big is your God? See, your faith is determined by the size of your God. And though I cannot understand all the components of every miracle that's recorded in Scripture, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, and it settles it whether you believe it or not, because it's true. Now, when you think about it, there's really a twofold miracle as it unfolds in the narrative. First, that Jonah could survive three days and three nights without, again, those gastric juices destroying him. Verse 17 clearly indicates, again, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow him. And there he was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. The second miracle was that God appointed and prepared a fish to be on the spot at just the right time to take his prophet inside. That's a miracle. By the way, this is not the first miracle that God does with a fish. On one occasion, if you remember... The leaders are questioning Christ's submission to Rome and the payment of taxes. And and in God's providence, God has some guy lose his coin and it falls a stater over his boat and down into the sea. And he says, fish, go get that stater. The fish goes, gets that stater. And he says, Peter, I want you to go cast your line into the water. The first fish you pull up, it's going to have a stater in it, and you can pay your tax in mine. Our God is a great God. He appoints this fish. Fish, come here. I got a prophet you need to pick up. And the fish immediately responds because our God is sovereign over his entire creation. Now, with that said, I don't want to give all of our attention to what happened on the outside in the ocean as much as I want you to see this morning what God did on the inside in Jonah's heart. And again, when you put these verses together, you see a picture between God's sovereignty and whether it's fish responsibility or human responsibility, God is over it all. The Lord commanded the fish, we're going to see, dropping down to chapter 2 and verse 10, he commanded the fish to vomit him up on dry land. And so he appoints the fish, he commands the fish to swallow Jonah, and then he commands the fish to spit up Jonah. This is a God who is sovereign, who is at work. And when you think about what God does in the world today, you don't want to miss the human responsibility, the part that you and I are called to play. Think about the Great Commission. We can rag on Jonah for his unwillingness to go and preach to the Ninevites when God has commanded us to take the gospel to make disciples. Even though Jonah refused to repent on the ship, as we will see, God gives him a second chance in the belly of the great fish. If you'd like a copy of today's message in its entirety, visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. 
You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling us at 877-787-7478 and requesting program JNH4. Of course, you can always use the Search the Scriptures app available for smartphones and tablets. Perhaps you have a question about the book of Jonah you'd like to ask Pastor Brogy personally or perhaps some other question about the Bible. You can do that Tuesday mornings between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. Listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. Tomorrow we'll continue our fourth message in our study of the book of Jonah. Join us then as we search the scriptures.